Welcome to the Sales Influence Podcast, where we talk about finding the why and how people buy. I'm your host, Victor Antonio. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for letting me your ears. And if you're watching this on video, thank you for letting me the eyeballs. Today, I got Michael Solomon on board, author of the new book called The New Chameleons. Michael, how are you doing this morning? Hey, I'm doing great, Victor. Thanks for having me on. Again, you should add that word, again. I should tell you this, for those of you listening, we recorded it the first time. It was a great interview, and then it wasn't recorded, so we're doing this one more time. So I want to talk about this book, Michael. Like I said, when you reached out, and I, at first I was skeptical, and then you sent me the book. I read it, super excited after I was done with it, and I wanted to kick off, if you don't mind, Michael, I wanted to kick off just to kind of frame the conversation. You got two, um, I guess, testimonials on the back cover, on the back jacket. I want to read them because the first one is uh, from Jonah Berger, author of Contagious and the Catalyst. He say, quotes, today's consumers are tough to classify. I love that line already. There are so many things at once that it often feels like they defy traditional approaches to segmentation. But thankfully, we have Michael Solomon's new book to show us the way. So I thought that was a brilliant one. And then I think I have one here by, let me see if I can find her. It was, uh, I think it's Laura Rise, co-author of The Immutable Laws of Branding and The Fall of Advertisement and The Rise of PR. That's a great title, by the way. Uh, she says, simple lifestyle categories are gone for good. No consumer wants to be locked into a category cage with a cute label. And then she talks about how great this book is. So I wanted to kind of frame this conversation because that's what this book's about. It's You're defying a lot of categorizations. Give me the reason why you wrote this book, Michael, and what you want people to take away from the book after they read it. Uh, yeah, sure. So, you know, I've been I've been teaching marketing for, I hate to say it, about 40 years. And, and of course, you know, on day one of the first course in marketing, we talk about market segmentation. That's the foundation of what we do, most of us. And, um, you know, what I came to realize over, over the last five or 10 years, obviously, uh, things are changing. You know, I think everybody has figured that out by now. Uh, there's a lot of disruptions going on, some of them bad, some of them good. Uh, one of the things that I noticed when I was working with companies, you know, to help them understand their customers, et cetera, uh, is that is that it's no longer really feasible to 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 carry out the basic logic of market segmentation, because uh, that that was a groundbreaking uh perspective actually was invented by the your friends at General Motors back in the early days of the uh, of the automotive industry uh, and it was based on a recognition that that not everybody wants the same stuff nor can they afford the same stuff and so uh, you know General Motors in contrast to Ford at the time came up with divisions like Chevrolet Cadillac etc and that worked great for a for a long time uh, it certainly worked well when we were in a in a three network broadcast world, you know, in the say in the '60s, where pretty much everybody in in the country would be watching one of three networks, um, and we could reach them all pretty well. So you fast forward to today, all of that is, has been destroyed. We have thousands of channels. Um, everybody is much more proactive now, largely because of this thing, this internet thing, which I guess is here to stay. And, um, you know, what, what we're each able to do now is to much more proactively pick and choose from all of the thousands and thousands of options that are out there to create our, our own lifestyle portrait, you know, and so we're, we're not inventing it. Uh, entirely, we're still using all of these brands that are out there. The brands are still important, but our relationship as consumers to these brands is is no longer the way it, it used to be. Today, uh, you know, in the old days, the, these big brands, uh, big popular brands, fill in the blanks, could kind of dictate your lifestyle because, uh, you know, once you bought into that, it was just like deciding whether you're going to watch NBC or ABC. You know, if you're an, if you're a Nike guy, you're a Nike guy. Mm -hmm. uh, but today that's really not the case. And so um, I just I, I decided to write this book because, you know, I'm often asked to give keynotes about changes in consumer behavior. Where are we heading? And and I realized that that the ways that we often approach our customers, you know, are they male or female? Are they are they rich or poor? Do they live in the East or the West? And on and on. You know, that that doesn't make sense in, in a world where we can really talk about markets of one, where each of us can actually potentially interact with the brands that we love 
and we can receive a customized message, a customized product. Um, and as you know, as a sales expert, you know, the, the greater the degree to which you as a salesperson can approach the interaction from the point of view of your customer, not from, the, from your point of view, that's the key to success. So when I talk about chameleons, what I'm saying is that like chameleons, we change our colors, so to speak, very quickly today. That is, we change our identities as we move in and out of different situations, often several times during the course of a day. We're, we're actually not the same person. You know, when, when you're doing this podcast, you're one person. When you're hanging out with your friends, you're another person. And, and on and on. And so uh, we really have to, uh, you know, the, the opportunities and, and, and I talk in the book, I give a number of examples of successful companies that have figured out that the way to succeed is not to offer a slightly better version of what's already there, but rather to kind of look outside of those boxes and say, how can we create a product or service that perhaps combines characteristics of different categories? Mm -hmm. You know, one of the, I, I, and I'm going to highlight this real quick. So two things I want to highlight. First is uh, page 13, you talk about the seven obsolete dichotomies. And you mm -hmm. go through these dichotomies. In other words, there's the, there's the us versus them, me versus we, offline versus online, producer versus consumer, and you go through the list. And I think that right there was brilliant because it gives you an outline of what the book is about, how the markets have changed. One of the things I like, and if I can just start here, because I thought this was, you know, I had to go back and reread this the second time because we're going to talk the second time. I said, <laughs> and it's always interesting what you find different the second time. Yeah. And I want, I wanted to kick off this, this conversation with the example of one of my favorite companies, Lululemon. If, if we could just start there, because I think that kind of hits the, the brand customization, personalization. Talk to me about like, you know, uh, I think Chip Olson here, who's the founder, he came up with what he, you called his muse or muses in this case. Talk to me about what he did and how it really applies to people who are thinking about trying to reach a certain market. Yeah, well, what he did is actually it's something that's 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 fairly common um, and it's it's really catching on now for people who didn't realize it. What he did very simply was uh, as he started to put together his new lifestyle yoga brand, um, he envisioned the typical user of what he was going to sell and in great detail. So I, you know, I give the details in the book about this woman. I think her name was Ocean, if I recall. And he, you know, he basically created what uh, in people in sales will call a persona, perhaps. And 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 um, what that does is it, it may not capture everybody, certainly, who walks into a Lululemon store, but it captures his vision of who that ideal customer is, but not in just broad brush strokes like, you know, she's 28 years old. You've got to get into the lifestyle. You've got to get into into really spending the day in her shoes and understanding. Uh, well, I guess you don't wear shoes when you do yoga, but <laughs> uh, you know, really understanding the experience of the brand from the perspective of a heavy user of that brand. And what that does is, you know, creatively, it allows you to really kind of transport yourself into that person's life and and the, the better you can do that certainly as a salesperson or as a as a product designer or a retailer uh, to the extent that you can develop your offering so that it really resonates with that individual it's so much more impactful than just saying well you know maybe we'll, we'll find some women who want to do yoga right right what i, what I loved about that when i read this because he described ocean uh, 32 years old, professional single woman, uh, makes $100,000 a year, has <laughs> engaged, has a condo, uh, uh, traveling, loves traveling, fashionable, has an hour and a half to, to work out every day. And it said here, this is what I thought was interesting, what you wrote. He said, the ideal user, according to Wilson, appeals to all women. He quotes, I quote him rather, uh, if you're 20 year old or you're graduating from a university, you can't wait to be that woman. But if you're 42 years old, with you know with a couple of kid children you wish to go back then and i thought that was a really interesting mm -hmm. you know look i mean can you can you add some flavor to what was the thought process there yeah well you know we as i think you know so much of marketing is what we call aspirational you know mm -hmm. everybody's on a project we're always a work in progress we're always in beta 
And so our motivation to buy products and services, especially those that impact us as individuals, uh, you know, so much of that is is governed by the extent to which we see that offering helping us to get to that aspiration. So it's kind of like a bridge from A to B. Here you are now, here's where you want to be. We call that your real self or your ideal self. And so much of advertising is built around this idea that we're going to show you how to get much closer to where you see yourself going. And so, uh, you know, whether you're, you're not there yet or you used to be there and you want to go back to it, as in this example, that persona needs to be a little bit aspirational. You know, it's it's not necessarily literally the heavy consumer of your brand, but but where is that person going? And so we can never lose track of this, that our customers' aspirations are changing. And so, mm -hmm. you know, there's the marketing graveyard is full of products that were awesome at the time because the company identified an unmet need. But the reason that it's in the graveyard is that they stopped there. They said, okay, we checked that box. We understand our customer. We don't need to innovate anymore. And then other companies come along and do that innovation and eat your lunch. Yeah. So, you know, one example I, I like to use is, is the Sony Walkman. You know, Sony in the 80s was brilliant because they came up with this idea that we wanted our music to be mobile. So they invented this Walkman. I guess you could probably see them in museums today, maybe. Um, and they said, OK, we're done. You know, and, and so today when I ask my students, how many of you own a Walkman? Because they all love to listen to music mobily. How many of you listen to it on a Walkman? Zero hands go up. Mm -hmm. And so other companies like Apple came along and said, yes, but going down the road, there are going to be better ways even to take your music mobily. So Sony identified that unmet need brilliantly. They just dropped the ball after the initial introduction. I agree. I agree. Uh, two, two key things. One is that I, I love the example about Lululemon because when he's looking at the people who want to be like that woman or the people who want to go back in time, it's almost looking at like market adjacencies in a persona-like way. So I thought that was interesting. But you said something key, though, that customers, and I used the word, you used the word progress because customers are trying to progress towards something. They want to be somebody. They're on a journey to that. And I think understanding that journey is what you're talking about as far as remaining flexible. Is that a fair statement? It, it, it is. You know, we're each, we each have multiple journeys because we have different dimensions in our lives, you know, whether it's uh, professional success, personal success, mastering your tennis game, <laughs> looking good in, in shorts, you know, what, whatever your particular goal is. And so we're constantly moving and, and also we're moving away, right? We're moving. We want to distance ourselves from types of people that we don't identify with. And we saw that in the political arena. Let's not even go there. But but so that motivation is both pulling you and pushing you toward new realities. And the marketer's goal is to be there to give you the stuff you need, which means the marketer has to know in advance what it is you're looking for. And if you're able to come up with an offering like that, you know, I love uh, Peter Drucker, the great management theorist, uh, what you know used to say that the goal of marketing is to make selling superfluous. Hmm. Another word, and I don't think we'll ever get there. So don't panic, salespeople. You you still got a job, but but what he meant was that in in an ideal world, we would anticipate what people want as they move forward so perfectly that we don't have to sell them at all because it will be obvious to them that this is a product or service that is going to help them get to where they're going. Now, is it, is it, in Mike, the real world, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, Michael, but are, aren't we kind of getting there? When you look at what we're doing with, you know, the customer journey, customer mapping, artificial intelligence, you know, what do you see? Because I, I think we're getting there, like where salespeople are now, I don't want to say a secondary thought, but the buyer's further into the buying journey and ready to make a decision. Well, the, yeah, the buyer's definitely further in by the time they, for example, certainly by the time they go to a store, either online or offline, they often know what they're going to buy. They're just going there to buy it because their their social network has already you know, given them the, the uh, information that, that they need. <clears throat> but you're right. I mean, the goal, you know, when, when you look at so much of AI uh, in the marketing area is about predicting behavior. And so, you know, you've got... For example, Amazon is is working on what they call predictive logistics, where they know that that Victor probably in a week or so is going to order, 
you know, personal care product or something, they already have your that product in the warehouse near you because they know that you're likely to order it. Right. And so anticipating that behavior, you know, that you're right, we, we are getting there. That's a little scary because it means we have no free will. Uh, so there always is, by the way, a space for what I would call serendipity or, you know, for example, the reason, you know, one thing you can't get on Amazon that you can get at a bookstore is going down an aisle that you don't normally go down and seeing the titles. Amazon's great at suggesting titles based on what you've already looked at. But that, you know, that one element that I hope doesn't go away with automation is the notion of surprise and still being, you know, a salesperson can still suggest a solution that is outside of the things that would normally be predicted. That's where a really creative salesperson comes in. Yeah, I don't think we'll, I think, uh, what's the guy's name? Kurtzwheel says we'll reach the point of singularity when the computer can think on its own. I, I don't think we'll get there, not in, a, not in our lifetimes. I, I think the, the part, as you pointed out, the creative piece, the innovative piece, that's something a machine can't do. And we're, we're making one large assumption, if I may, is that we think using, you know, a, a neural networks that we're actually mimicking the brain. But I think the brain is much more complex than a neural network. So it'll be a while before we get there. So you're right. Don't panic. Now, in your book, you talked about I – I want to hit a couple of key points here because you talked about what the – let's start out with the profile of a millionaire and how that box looks a little different than what we think it is. Most people think it's the guy with the – you know, or the gal with the jewelry, you know, the whole bit, the nice car. You know, walk me through the, the new millionaire profile before we really get into this. Yeah, well, you know, it's, and it's kind of a commentary today that, you know, frankly, being a millionaire, it's still a good thing, but it's not like what it used to be. Right. <laughs> you know? uh, when, a, when a house, you know, when a two bedroom house costs a million dollars, a million, having a million isn't so great. I wouldn't turn it down. But yeah, um, but yeah I mean, obviously, a lot of the, the images that we have of, of types of people that we aspire to, you know, where is it coming from? It, it's, it's coming from the media. And obviously, the media idealizes things, you know, so I, I've spoken to a lot of people from other countries who tell me when they first arrived in the US, they thought that the streets were paved in gold. They thought that everybody drove a, a fancy car and lived in a mansion because when they watch the TV shows from, you know, Central Europe, wherever they are, that's the image of America. People are either getting shot or they're wealthy. You know, mm. uh, now both of those things are going on, you know, but not to the extent that the media depicts. And so, uh, you know, to your your point about a millionaire, you know, a lot a lot of millionaires are, you know, are more likely to fit the Warren Buffett mold of, of being, you know, living relatively modest lifestyles, not splurging on these things, you know, having uh, not getting a new car every year and, and all that. And so. You know, there's an example where a lot of times in sales and marketing, we we market to the customer we want to have rather than the customer we do have. And so uh, and that's why, by the way, so many marketers go after younger consumers and more affluent consumers, uh, which is great. But they're they're often missing the boat because you've got people like this millionaire, let's say, who's not going to be really uh, influenced by a message you know, that paints a picture like you did with the big gaudy jewelry and, and stuff like that. So the reality is often different than the than the picture that that the media will paint. We have to be very careful about that. And, and, and again, this is what I love about the book, The New Chameleons by Michael Sullivan. You, you have to get this book, especially if you're a market, you got to get this book. You touched on something in the book. Uh, and I've never heard this phrase, Michael. I've never heard this phrase. Ambicultural. Yeah. And this 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 section really hit me because I took it personally because you were talking about Hispanics and obviously my family's from Puerto Rico. So so I took it personally in a good way. Uh, but you talked about that the research and I'll read some of it research that examines such factors as shopping orientation, the importance of people placed on various product attributes, media preferences and brand loyalty generally supports this pattern. And the pattern is that I mean, you you walk through. The how we identify with brands as Hispanics. And as I was reading this list, you talk about they have more negative attitude towards business in general. They access more media that's in their native language. I'm like, sure, you know, you know, Telemundo, right? Uh, they are more brand loyal. Yeah, I mean, we didn't change a lot of brands, Michael, when we were growing up. I, we, uh, 
Uh, we're more likely to prefer brands with prestige labels. Oh, you got us pegged on that one. And they're more likely to buy brands that specifically advertise to their ethnic group. I was like, yep, yep, yep. I said, dang, I think Michael's right. And so talk to me about this ambicultural and how we as companies can begin to market to some of these segments more effectively. Yeah, well, you know, one one example of what I was talking about before, kind of, you know, taking a huge group of people and assuming that they're all the same because they have the same label, whether it's female or Hispanic or whatever that label is, um, you know, within within every one of those big categories, there are gradations there and there are differences. And I'm, I'm sure you would agree that not every Hispanic consumer is the same. Even though a company might say, well, okay, we have our Hispanic consumers. What are we going to say to them? So, you know, so one one of the important ways to differentiate within a a category like that is degree of acculturation. In other words, are they first generation? Are they fifth generation? And 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 obviously age within that as well. So so younger people who are living, we're living in a multicultural society, obviously, um, uh, people are exposed to a lot of different a lot of different cultural influences. You know, just go into a, a food court in a mall and you get to pick all the different ethnic foods and so on. Um, and and this idea of ambiculturalism, you know, what that means is just like you could be left and right handed. I think a lot of younger people who are, let's say, they're Hispanic or they're Asian, whatever they happen to be, um, they're marrying part of their traditional culture with the broader culture that they interact with every day. So to expect your, you know, your abuela to be the same as, as you, it, you know, it doesn't make a lot of sense. And so what gets interesting is, for example, when you look at music, you see the crossover categories. And that word crossover is important because it's what I'm talking about in terms of general marketing strategy. You know, you might have traditional, let's say, Latin music but then you've got crossover music that marries, let's say, rap or hip hop or, or even rock or I guess even country. Um, and so that that's, I think, a more accurate picture of today's chameleon who is not, you know, they may still think it's very important to understand, let's say, their Hispanic heritage. But that doesn't mean they're going to be lockstep traditional Hispanic like their grandparents are. I agree. So I agree. This- there's always this tension between, you know, how much do you assimilate and how much do you retain of your of your home culture? And in America, that plays out in some really great ways. And it opens new market opportunities, especially for people in other cultures. You know, again, let's just talk about food. I think that's the most obvious. You know, if we look at ethnic restaurants and, and all, you know, when I when I was growing up, we had one Chinese restaurant in the whole city. And we thought we were very cosmopolitan when we went there, you know. Um, but of course, today, every other restaurant is Chinese or, you know, something else. Uh, and we take it for granted that we can sample. So really, really, the marketing landscape is a lot more like one of those big international buffets. I don't know if they'll ever come back after COVID, but you know what I mean, where we can sample lots of different cuisines rather than just being locked into one. That's what today's consumer is about, sampling and exploring. Yeah, you know, I've always been, you know, and by the way, I agree with you, you know, because we grew up listening to like salsa music. But, you know, because I'm first generation, I evolved into, you know, the, the crossover of hip hop and Spanish music, which is reggaeton, which has some reggae flavor in it. So it's like, you know, we evolved. And I've always, and I'd love to get your opinion on this because I, I've always, I shouldn't say always, let's just say for many years now, I've disliked the labels of Hispanic. This is just me being personal here. And Latin, I'm like, oh, what does that mean? I was born and raised here. So when people say, are you Hispanic? I'm going, you know, they, they, they always label me Hispanic American. I'm always flipping it for them. I go, no, it's more like American of Hispanic descent. You know, what are your thoughts on these these labels that that we're getting slapped with and you know the marketing that goes along with it yeah again that's you know that's the heart of my argument here is you know what psychologists call it a nominal fallacy nominal fallacy and what that means is that that this 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 feeling that we have that if we assign something a name we understand it Mm -hmm. so we give it a label like hispanic american and then we tick the box and we move on 
But again, obviously, there are a lot of nuances there. And 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 Victor, one of them, you know, I, by the way, I have uh, my son-in-law is Cuban American from Miami, mm -hmm. so I've learned a lot about the the more of the nuances <laughs> of the Hispanic consumer. And you know, you and, and so even within that, you've got you've got huge distinctions, obviously, between country of origin. You know, whether it's sure. Puerto Rico or Cuba or Honduras or Mexico, et cetera people within that category and you know my son-in-law is fluent in spanish but he can listen to anybody talk on the street in spanish and tell me what country they're from as mm -hmm. well and so he's he making it. much much more fine-grained distinctions and so if he's doing that just in terms of people speaking don't you think he's doing it in terms of products as well it you know it's just obvious to me Great point. Great point. Yeah, I get people still ask me, do I like spicy food? I'm like, we're from Puerto Rico. We like garlic. We don't like spices. Cubans are the same way. But I, I want to move on to uh, something you talked about, influencers, and what people are looking for in the market. We all know that consumers are inundated with a lot of product content, a lot of product categories. And you talked about, you used the word curation and category expert. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, can, can you expand on that just a little bit? Uh, sure. So, you know, what... To me, one one thing that's very ironic is that that the biggest from a marketing perspective, the biggest challenge we face in the developed world today is not that we don't have enough choices like some people in the world and some people in our own country, obviously. Uh, but the biggest challenge we face is having too much choice. Uh, you know, the, the Internet in particular, obviously, opened up this fire hose of information that we get drowned in every day. There's no way, and our, our brains have not evolved fast enough to process all that information. We're, we're each exposed to about three times as much information in a day as people were in the 1960s. And that number is growing even more every day. So what we need is, you know, we talk a lot about consumers kind of, you know, taking over, removing the need for salespeople, you were saying. One reason I strongly disagree is that the salesperson's job today is not necessarily to present us with the choices, but to curate the choices and narrow them down. You know, so if, if you think about it, uh, we're, we're in, we live in something that, again, psychologists call hyper choice, which means that we have so many choices that we zone out and we often that you see the paradox is we assume that by giving consumers more and more options, we're doing them a favor and they're going to love us. But the but what the research shows very strongly is that after a certain point, as people get more and more options, you know, like, say, customizing your car, you know, you have 200 different ways to pick the interior of your car. People actually make poorer choices when they have too many options because we're just not able to handle all of that. And so we've always relied on on what we might call curators, like a museum curator who picks and chooses. You know, there might be, uh, you know, 10,000 Italian Renaissance paintings, but the curator can't show you all of them and doesn't want to. So she's going to pick, you know, the 20 that best exemplify that to put into a museum. And in the same way, a retail buyer is a curator, you know. So if, I, if I'm loyal to Store X because I always love the clothing that they have there, what I'm basically saying is I, I am abdicating part of my role to the people who are stocking that store because they obviously are on the same wave, wavelength I am. And so I'm not even going to consider all the other choices. I just can't handle that. And so mm -hmm. the biggest challenge today is how do we edit down all of these options? And that's where all these intermediaries in the channel are springing up. You know, you have the traditional ones, like I said, the retail buyers, let's say, or, you know, the editors of Women's Wear Daily or something, somebody like that. But today we have these so-called influencers who are not necessarily formally trained, don't necessarily work in the industry, but they have one way or another convinced you that they're able to take a look at 10,000 choices and make a recommendation of 10 of them to you. So, you know, whether or not they're qualified to do that, what their motives are, that's a different conversation. But they're, the reason that, that so many people are looking for these influencers is just, to, is just to uncomplicate what is a very complicated marketing world. I love that. And by the way, we, we both agree that the, the sales role won't go away. I think when you get into, I guess, a situation where it's a complex sale, B2B complex sale, you're always going to need a 
somebody to guide you. And, and this kind of really ties in, if we can just tie it back to sales a little bit, you know, the trusted advisor role. The trusted advisor role is another way of saying a curator. It's a person who's going to help you make a buying decision. And if I hear you right, and I think I am, is that the customer, to some extent, wants to be guided in the right direction. So in other words, wants advice from a salesperson that's positioned themselves as a trusted advisor. Yeah. Fair assessment? Yeah, I, I think that's fair. And, you know, I... Um, at one point in my career, I did a lot of research on so-called wardrobe consultants, you know, people who pick your clothes for you. And I was fascinated by that because uh, because that's an example of a highly personal decision that where you would think we would want to have maximum control. And yet what I what I realized is a lot of people, uh, especially career women uh, who were very competent in their careers, were paying a total stranger to come in and pick out their clothing for them. And I think that that task is is actually, when you break it down, very similar, even in a B2B context, to looking to an advisor to narrow things down for very important decisions. And what I found is they have one of two motivations, um, and, and I called it the head versus the legs. So the legs means I, I know what I want. I just don't. I'm so overwhelmed. I need somebody to go out and buy it for me and maybe to get it at a better price. But the people who, who were the, the heads, so to speak, really didn't trust their own judgment. And they wanted a professional to come in and make the choices for them. So those are two very different people. So there I am. I'm guilty of what I was writing about. I've already just created two labels, heads ver head versus legs. Oh, but, I love but, it. I, but I, the I, idea is, you know, <laughs> you're absolutely right that the salesperson is the trusted advisor but it's also important to know what it is your client needs advising about. In other words, do they want that convenience aspect? So for you to navigate the channel and just make it easier, or do they genuinely want some, some advice about what they should be looking at in the first place? And a lot of it has to do with how confident they are, how long they've been in that role and so on. So if you're, if your client is, is as a B2B salesperson, if your client is, a, is relatively new to that, to that domain, it's a fair assumption that they don't just want you to navigate the channel. They want some direction from you. And as they get older and more seasoned in that role, that's when they're likely to say, yeah, I get it. I know what all the options, but I need you to go in there and actually negotiate the deal for me. I love it. I mean, I'm kind of smiling inside because you kind of you kind of called me out without knowing that you called me out. So the I have a reality show. Did you know this, Michael? I have a reality. show. I did show. not know that. No. So so I have a reality show. It's called Life or Debt. It's on the Paramount Channel. We did one huh. season. I was the host, right? It's called Life or Debt, and I didn't know how to dress myself for the show. So I literally spent uh, like I don't know almost a whole day with just a personal designer. And by the way, and I'm not talking about like designer clothes. He just had to go, no, you want those jeans to look like that. It's not tapered enough. Okay, the type of shoes, okay, you only wear these. And it was, it's not that I don't know fashion. Come on, Latins know a little bit about fashion. It's just that it was, my head was the problem, Michael. It wasn't my legs. My head, I didn't trust myself. So I relied on somebody else to yeah. give me the feedback. I think that's yeah. a great, that's a great yeah. analogy, by the way. And there's so many, you know, there's so many businesses that are like that, you know, stockbrokers, financial advisors. It doesn't have to be just, you know, consumer products. When you think about something like a stockbroker, you know, do you go full service or not? And if you're going full service, it means that you want that head function, you know. So just about any product or service that you offer to people, it doesn't have to be tangible. It can, it can be managing their money, managing their company's money. Uh, real estate, all of these things, that same kind of logic applies. And, you know, and I know we've talked about this already, but I, I want to put a, a finer point on it to make sure people get it. Because when you're highlighting curators and, you know, the, the influencers, these category experts, you're really talking about people get to the point where, one, they don't trust themselves or they don't want to do it, the leg piece. But also there's a lot of decision fatigue going on. I'm tired of making decisions. I just need somebody to just, just tell me what to do. Yeah, Does that make absolutely. sense? Okay. Absolutely. And, 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 and again, you know, we do the opposite as marketers. We say, well, let's give them more choices, you know? And so, you know, we call that uh, feature creep sometimes when you look at all the different features that 
you know, your, I was going to say your VCR, but we don't even have those anymore. I'm dating myself, <laughs> but your, whatever that device is called today, uh, you know, all of these things, let's add 10 more features to make it even more convenient. And then, and then we have this decision fatigue that you're talking about where people throw up their hands and say, you know what, I'm going to flip a coin pretty much. Who cares? Yeah. In many cases, I mean, depending on which study you believe, your biggest challenge is not your competitor. Your biggest challenge is the status quo. People don't want to do anything because they're so overwhelmed. They go, you know what? Uh, I'll, I'll do this next year. And so I, I think to your point, yeah. it's like we have to be, we as salespeople, sh it should be okay with yeah. nudging. I said never push, but it's okay to nudge. nudge. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about, there's this thing that, and I think it's the Proteus effect that you talk about. Talk to me about the Proteus effect. I think it's a fascinating concept. It is. Yeah, the Proteus effect. So Proteus was a shape-changing god. And um, the reason they, so the reason this is referring to research that's done on virtual worlds, you know, where people are interacting as an avatar, whether it's in a video game or The Sims or some, and, and by the way, I mean, a whole other conversation on this, but this is an underground activity that involves millions and millions of people around the world that many marketers have no idea is going on. But, but what they find there is that, you know, the important thing, the reason I highlighted in the book is that, um, we spend we're spending so much of our time online, you know, at, right now it's up to about for younger people, about almost 11 hours a day looking at a screen. What? And that number, and that number you, is, is rising. You, yeah. 11 hours Michael? a day. Uh, when it was six hours a day, about 10 years ago, people said, oh, my God, this, you know, civilization's going to end. And then it went up to eight. And now, you know, you can see the trajectory. But my, my point is here that that increasingly so much of our identity just stands to reason. If you're spending half of your life in an online situation, a lot of your identity is gonna be formed by the experiences you have online. And so in this particular application, what they find is that, for, for, that our experiences online actually, when we come back offline, change the way we feel about ourselves. It's not an isolated kind of thing. And so, for example, in, in one study that demonstrated this, uh, you know, they would send uh, guys in, uh, college students in to interact in a virtual world. And um, this uh, very attractive female avatar would, would come up to them and start flirting with them and, you know, tell them how handsome they are and all this. And meanwhile, they're just an avatar. They're not the real guy, you know. Uh, and then they, then they end the experiment. The person thinks the experiment is over. They leave and, um, and, and half of them are not exposed to that treatment, right? So then they leave the experiment, and as they're walking away in real life, a very attractive female student comes up and starts to talk to them. And what they find is that the guys who were emboldened by their experience as an avatar in the virtual world were more assertive and more likely to, you know, to follow up and you know, try to get a date with the girl, what have you because their self-confidence, even though they were just this little avatar, that affected the way they felt about themselves. So, uh, it, you know, it's a, it's a fun little study, but the broader, the broader point is that we can no longer separate what we do offline versus online. So one of the major, major dichotomies I talk about in the book that is obsolete is going offline versus going online. Today's young people are constantly moving back and forth and they they never can really tell you if they're online or offline because they're both at the same time and marketers need to figure that out really fast that i mean that's like i said when i read that i'd never heard of that and i think it's fascinating and immediately my brain rushes to how would you apply that in selling and much like the example you're giving about the uh the the young men being approached by the young lady and getting that positive reinforcement you know online then taking that those characteristics offline, I think about training and I said, what if you could have a reinforce those positive sales experiences online, how that person would feel offline? That'd be interesting, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. And actually, uh, my colleague and I actually did some of that with with pharmaceutical uh, sales reps where they, you know, we trained them by uh, having them interact in a virtual world especially when they were just starting out and they were petrified about calling on on doctors. And we actually set up a virtual doctor's office at one point and had them practice trying to talk to a, an avatar doctor rather than a real one. And they 
you know, basically what we found is they were a lot more confident after that experience because it's a more of a risk-free way to do it. I'm, you probably remember, you know, you've, I'm sure you've had thousands or millions of sales interactions. You probably remember your first few because you were petrified. Not much came out of my mouth. Yeah, yeah. And so, and so, you know, and, and by the way, again, a broader issue probably for another podcast is so many of our sales interactions as we move more and more online, are going to be either with avatars or with AI that looks like a chatbot or looks like an avatar. Is there a real person at that call center, et cetera? And that is a major issue. I, I write and talk about that quite a lot because uh, marketers haven't really figured out, you know, if, if their salesperson is going to be a robot. Let's say it's in a let's say it's in a physical store, and they because we're starting to see that in Japan, they ha, a bank there has robots waiting on customers in the bank. Uh, they haven't given a lot of thought to what should be the characteristics of that robot. Just like we do, you know, you were talking about your your clothing on the TV show. These are cues that are very very important, and yet we're throwing these chatbots out there and not really thinking about, you know, should they be male or female? Should they be lifelike or animated and, and on and on? And yet we know from 60, 80 years of research that little cues like that, like whether your genes fit or not, for better mm -hmm. or worse, that is, that is a major cue that people are going to use to decide if they like you, if they trust you, if they're going to buy from you. It's funny how when I was getting dressed by the guy, I was I was seeking validation. I kind of was self-aware. I was like, why am I here with this guy? Oh, that's right. I'm seeking validation because I don't know what I'm yeah. doing. And, I, and getting back to your example that you uh, the study you did with the uh, the virtual salespeople or the salespeople who went virtual. So what did you can you can you can you give me more on that? On like what happened? This is the one where they they were interacting with the uh, the chat the chat bot or the virtual. Assistant, yeah, well, and it came uh, up. Yeah, essentially, what we well, we have a strong pharmaceutical marketing program at my university in my in my business school, and so we train a lot of students to go out and be reps. Um, and usually, you know, it's a that kind of sales training, as you know, is extremely expensive and time consuming because usually they have to literally bring real doctors in or real uh, executives in from pharma companies. To, to role play with the students. And I'm sure you do a lot of role play as training, you know? Um, well, that's a, that's a huge cost and it's very nerve wracking for the newbies, right? So what we did in, in this particular application, we created a, a doctor's office and um, the avatar, the, 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 the student would have to come in dressed as a sales rep, you know, as a detailer, uh, come in. And for example, what we, what we found out in our, in our research was that the biggest sales obstacle in those settings is getting past the office manager. Uh, a lot of a lot of them call that person the dragon lady, by the way, that seems to be a common. <laughs> um, and so some of our exercises had to do with not just talking to the doctor, but walking up to the desk where this kind of forbidding woman, you know, an avatar woman is sitting and basically trying to talk their way into the doctor's office. And of course, the gatekeeper's job there is that is to keep the doctor away from those reps. So by giving them strategies in a very in a very low risk setting, because they knew at some point that this is a simulation, they could leave. Um, we, what we found was that their their training experience was was a lot more positive for them. And the, and the professionals that we used who train these salespeople who are part of our faculty we're blown away by how different the students were in terms of their confidence, because often their students, you know, after those initial experiences, they they're like just a shell of a person because it's so traumatic for them. You have, you know, let's say a 20 year old uh, college student who's never done anything like this, who now has to walk in and talk to a doctor. That's pretty scary stuff. So so there's lots of and, and by the way, these virtual environments, uh, like I said, a topic for another day. but. Because, of, because you're able to simulate very, very uh, realistically a lot of real world experiences, there's a huge amount of applications. So for example, the military uses this technology for, P, for PTSD victims to help them relive traumas by taking them to a virtual battlefield where there are shells landing and helicopters flying and all that. So it's, used in a, it's being used already in a variety of ways to train people like salespeople who are in a new situation that has a lot of risk attached to it 
and that requires them to master certain routines and et cetera. Very interesting well, stuff. That is, that is. When, when you published that paper on the, uh, the pharmaceutical study that you did, I'd love to read it. Yeah. Seriously, I'd love to read it. Uh, I wanted to hit on something you talked about. Uh, it's P2P commerce, because I think this is very fascinating. Can, can you just go into yeah. what you meant by that and the, the examples that were in the book? I think was just great. Uh, sure. So P2P means person to person. And, you know, again, a dichotomy that, uh, that's dying is that we have big banks and then we have consumers, you know, and, and what we find today is that many of us are turning into bankers. So uh, and, and you find in, in developing countries like in Africa, for example, when I, I was there a few years ago, I was amazed that there were no physical banks that I could see. And yet everybody's doing their banking on a cell phone. So they kind of skipped that infrastructure part that we have. Uh, and, and what that means is that it empowers people like, for example, a rural woman in, in an African country who is able to now start her own business. Uh, maybe she's doing direct selling like Mary Kay or something that they're very big over there. Uh, but but what it means is that you and I are able to do a lot of business and eliminate the middleman, which is that bank. And so we have a lot of uh, we have banks now that that are really pure plays. In other words, we have banks that that do not have physical branches at all. They're only online. And some of those are empowering the consumer <laughs> to actually carry out the transactions. And, you know, this has been happening for a long time. I mean, what, you know, for many people, they, they haven't been in their bank for the last 10 years because they've done everything on their phone. Others like the security of the of the building. But this this is kind of the engine that's driving a lot of this new the whole gig economy is built on this. Um, and so for salespeople, especially if they work for themselves, you know, this this opens up a lot of doors because you don't need to have that capital from the bank. You don't need to have that seal of approval. And it's breaking down a lot of boundaries, a lot of walls. No, I love that. I love that. You also talked about, you know, it, I don't know if crowdsource is going to be the right word here. You, you had a Lego example and a DeWalt as an example of two companies who were using people crowdsourcing to actually get a wisdom of the crowd, I should say, just to develop new product. Can you talk about that a little bit? Uh, yeah, yeah, because that, you know, one of the one of the fundamental dichotomies that's breaking down is producers versus buyers versus consumers. And so what what you're seeing here is that and, and, and again, so many companies, Apple is the worst offender, but there are many companies who who believe it's it's absolute disaster to give your customers any peek at your product before it's absolutely ready. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, a lot of successful companies have figured out that it should be the opposite. You know, software developers were probably the first because they would invite users of their code to go in and debug it. You know, when Microsoft does that, they, they save millions of dollars a year by having legions of coders who are happy to go through and debug their programs. If they had to pay their own people to do that, it would be enormous. So what we're seeing is uh, in, in a lot of businesses, looking at the customer as a co-creator of the product is a very, very powerful way to go. And incidentally, using salespeople in the same way. Your salespeople are the best source of intelligence about what your new product line should look like. Because they're Mike, hearing, they're Mike, hearing all the objections you. of the old let one, me, right? Let me, let me pause you here, Michael, because every salesperson is going to be paying homage to you right now. Every salesperson is going to be paying homage to you because that's always been the problem, right? That product marketing, product managers don't listen to frontline salespeople. And a lot of that stuff, yeah. not, so, so I'm glad you said that. Sorry, I had to interrupt because that was such a great yeah. point. No, it's, it's, it's true. And, you know, you lock out your employees and you certainly lock out your best customers. They should be... They, they have their ear to the ground more than anyone else. And so company, the ones you mentioned that I talk about in the book, like like Lego and DeWalt, two very different you know, verticals, um, what they what they have in common is that they've basically lifted up the kimono and let you know, consumers can suggest ideas for new products. They can talk among they have a community that they encourage uh, to talk about this stuff. 
And, you know, Apple has that as well, but it's never officially sanctioned. You know, so you have a lot mm -hmm. of people who want to get involved and, you know, here's how I would change the next iPhone. But Apple doesn't want to hear about that, you know. Yeah. Uh, but many, many companies do. And so you can call it crowdsourcing. You can call it a lot of different things. I like to call it co-creation. And what it means is that we rethink the role of the salesperson. We rethink the role of the customer. To, to understand that their job title, so to speak, also includes co-creation with the people that traditionally keep themselves locked up until that product launch is ready to go. Yeah, I, I just read an article, uh, Elon Musk made a statement that he doesn't care about patents. And his, his, now at first, when you first hear that, you're kind of shocked by the statement, but then when you hear his reasoning, it goes along with what you're talking about. He says, look, I said, we got a lot of people working on projects. We can spend time trying to do a patent, but what will happen is somebody will just look at the patent and just try to figure out, we just gave them a blueprint for what we just did. And what he's essentially saying is, let's not worry about patents. Let's worry about creating something and evolving over time that piece of creation. And I think he's onto something there. What are your thoughts on that? I know it's off the, off the topic here. Yeah, well, well, you know, I mean, the patent lawyers may not be too happy about that, but... Mm -hmm. uh, but I think it's a recognition that of the about the fluidity of this whole process. And again, you know, in the old days, we could make a product and maybe tweak it a little bit, but pretty much keep it out there forever, you know, an evergreen product. Today, it's not going to work that way because consumers are demanding change. They're demanding novelty and stimulation. And again, they want to be part of that change. And so uh, when we look, for example, in the fashion area, we see that so many, you know, I mean, knockoffs are everywhere. It's very hard to patent a style, right? And yet people are continuing to innovate. The ones that aren't worried about getting knocked off because they say, well, first of all, it's a compliment to me, maybe, you know, depending how it's represented. But also, I'm going to be moving on from there anyway. And now I can, you know, I can look at what the reactions are in the marketplace and continue to change. And so, as I said before, we're always in beta, both as people, but also as organizations. We have to be in beta or we're going to die because nothing lasts forever. I love it. We're always in beta. On that note, Michael, any last words? Give, give, one, give one good plug for this book, why people should read this book and who should read this book. Sure. Well, I think anybody who's interested in marketing, uh, whether professionally or not, you know, I would love to, to have them read the book. Um, it, it really addresses a lot of the fundamental disruptions that are going on today. And what's amazing is that so many marketing people are, are not really thinking about this because they and, and I understand it because they're focusing on the next quarter. But if you don't understand how your customers are changing, then you're not going to be able to keep up with them. So, uh, you know, I don't want to over dramatize it and say it's 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 survival that you, for reasons you should read the book. But uh, yeah, there is some of that because the the tried and true stuff that I've been teaching for 40 years no longer works. Today's consumer is a chameleon. They're not just a fossil. I agree. I think if you're marketing, you're uh, again social media marketing. And if you're just a salesperson, I would highly recommend the book, The New Chameleons by Michael Sullivan. And that is it for the Sales Influence Podcast. This is Victor Antonio always reminding you that marketing ain't hard when you hang out with Michael and you know how. Take care.